Christ Fellowship, let's bring glory to God just a little bit longer. He has forgiven us and by his stripes, we are healed. Glory to God forever. Amen. Amen. Well, welcome everyone to Christ Fellowship. Hey, for those of you who are new here, my name is Van and I get to serve as one of the pastors here. And I want to take a moment to welcome all of our campuses, our local campuses all across Miami-Dade County and our online campus as well as well as all our guests all across online and our local. Christ Fellowship, can we give it up for our guests here today? Well, we're continuing our series called Ancient Stories as we're looking at Old Testament ancient stories and seeing and discovering God's truths as it relates to our modern relationship. Today, we're going to look at the story of King David. So if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 15 and then hold it there because we're also going to read 1 Samuel verse 18. So John chapter 15, beginning in verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. These are Jesus' words. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And then in 1 Samuel 18, verse 1 says this, as soon as he finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own Soul. God bless the reading of his word. You may have a seat. Well, several years back, uh, the staff at Christ, the employees at Christ Fellowship had our annual staff party. And so we gathered together. It had all the similar elements of our staff party. We had a time of celebration, a time of worship, a time of prayer, and a time of fun. But this particular time that we gathered together uh, was different. We've done something that we've never done before. And in fact, I've never even seen in my life how we concluded that evening our staff gathering was by silent disco. Has anyone ever done silent disco? Yeah, okay, some of you, right? And so for those of you who don't know what silent disco is, is that it's a, very similar to a regular dance, right? You, you're, you're people on the dance floor, but the only difference is that they're hearing music not from a speaker system reverberating throughout the whole room, but how they're hearing music and how they're dancing to music is being broadcast by wireless headphones that they dance to. This is what silent disco looks like. Yeah, that's silent disco. Now, you, you might be wondering, what's so silent about that? Now, this might come as a surprise to you, but I actually don't dance. I know that's kind of a disappointment. I know some of you are like, you know, you look like you dance on a professional level. That's not true. Uh, so so I, I didn't participate initially. Eventually, my wife, you know, told me to, to go. But what I did was I just sat back and just watched everyone silent disco. And from my vantage point, from my perspective, this is what silent disco looked like. Take a look. Yeah, very comical it is. Um, and so from my vantage point, I, I just began to just observe people. And it was comical. But what I did notice is that in, within silent disco, there is a side objective. There's a, a side mission, right? So in silent disco, the main objective is to dance and have a good time. The side objective and the side mission to silent disco is simply this. Find people that, that, that are listening to the same song as you are and dance with them. You see, in these headphones, there are different channels that you can choose from. 
right? You, you might turn to one channel and it is 80s or 90s music, right? And then you have a group of people dancing to 90s music and you can change it and it could be pop music and you have another group of people listening and dancing to pop music and you could change the other channel and listen to contemporary music, right? And so you have groups of people dancing in different places and then eventually there's this group in the corner there that kind of looks confused, right? They, they have their hand up and they're, I think they're looking for the DJ to come get them. Maybe something's broken and, and the other person next to them has their other hands up as well. And two people have two questions, right? And they come to find out they're just worshiping in the, the corner there, right? So, so here's what I've noticed from my perspective. I've noticed that the side mission of Silent Disco is people will dance with other people until they find someone who's listening to the same channel and the same song as they are. They, they might approach a group here and start dancing and they realize they're kind of offbeat. Why? It's because they're listening to a different song. And so they go on to the next group and to the next group until they find their people, until they find their tribe, and they're dancing to the Cupid Shuffle together, right? Now, let me bring that over to our teaching today because the same can be true about our lives. See, just in the same way that in silent disco, people have to navigate the dance floor to find and discover people who are in the same rhythm as they are, the same beat, dancing to the same tune. Listen, we too have to navigate in the dance floor what we call life, looking for people who are dancing to the same tune, who are listening to the same songs that we are to fulfill God's purposes in our lives. In fact, my big takeaway for us today and what I want you to walk away today with is this big idea, which is this, that when you find your tribe, you will find your people. That when you find your tribe, you will find your purpose. And listen, some of you know this. Some of you recognize this because some of you say, you know what, I have people in my life. I have found a tribe, a community of people, and my life is flourishing because of them. Now, some of you know this because the opposite is true in your life, where you find yourself alone. You don't have people who are you're doing life and living life with that enhances your well-being, your spiritual life. And maybe for some of you, 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 you are dancing with people, that you are listening to songs, but it's just not the song that God has in your life, the purpose of your life. And so the obvious question that we have to ask is this. Who is in my tribe, right? Who, who, who are the people that make up my tribe? And more importantly, the question that we have to ask ourselves is, what are the characters, what kinds of people that need to make up our tribe? Well, we're going to find out as we look into the ancient story of King David in the Bible. King David, and not only will we find about his life, but the people that he surrounded himself with, the people that were in the corner, David's tribe, and we're going to discover they're the kinds of people that we need in our life as well. Now, but before we get into David's life, there is an important theological point that I need to share with you. So if you're taking notes, write this down as point number one, that we are created for meaningful relationships. God created us in relationship with one another. What we see in the Bible is that God creates, and in Genesis chapter 1, he creates the heavens and the earth, and it is good. Now, you just jump two chapters. In Genesis chapter 3, what you see happen is that sin and death enter the world, and it ravishes God's good creation, and it is a big deal, and it is a big problem, and that begins to carry out in the narrative arc of the Bible. Now, there's something interesting that happens in Genesis chapter 2. See, God creates Adam, 
And after this kind of rhythmic poem that God creates and it is good, God creates and it's good. When he gets to Adam, here's what Genesis chapter 2 verse 18 says. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone, which is staggering when you think about it. Because this is before sin entered the world. And God created Adam with unhindered relationship, unhindered fellowship, and yet God said it is not enough. And so what we see that the first problem that God uh, solves in the Bible is not sin, it's solitude. The first problem that God solves in our world is not idolatry, it is isolation. And, 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 and we got to ask the question, why isn't it good for Adam to be alone? And furthermore, the question we have to ask is why did God even put this in the narrative of cre- the creation narrative? Why just not to say God created and is good, and then eventually he created Adam and Eve, and then it was very good? Well, the reason why, because I believe that God wanted to break this poem that we see here, this, this kind of rhythmic poem, and to make an exclamation point that, listen, we are created for meaningful relationships and warn us of the dangers of isolation, and we don't have people in our lives. You know, in 2018, Tracy Crouch made history because she was the first person in any country to fulfill a role, a duty that has never been created before. In 2018, Tracy filled in the role in the UK as a minister of loneliness to tackle the ongoing problem in Britain where people are progressively becoming isolated and anxious and committing suicide. And can I tell you, in light of the pandemic, in light of kind of being at home and being more isolated, this has crept up into our lives and that even more, not just Britain who has a minister of loneliness, but recently Japan and Germany now has a minister of loneliness. And can I tell you, with the ever-growing expanse of technology that isolates and separates us, the United States of America will soon one day, mark my words, have a cabinet member to deal with this problem of loneliness. In fact, one researcher says this, that 75% of Americans say that they are not satisfied with their relationships. So as I look at a room like this, three-fourths of you would say, I'm not satisfied with the relationships in my life. And so this is a big deal, and this is a big problem, and it's for that reason, write this down as point number two, you need friends in your corner. See, David had friends. David had friends in his life that marked his life. He had friends in his life that shaped his future. And listen, we can look at David in more of kind of an an individual success, right? He was a man after God's own heart, a conquering warrior, king of Israel, did mighty things for God. And we can look at him as individually, and we can forget that there were people in David's life, right? Behind every great individual, behind every great hero are people in the corner of them, Right? So, so I, I love combat sports, and I don't know if you watch boxing or MMA. Typically, we look at these sports as kind of a one-on-one individual sport, one against the other, but we forget that there are, when they walk into that arena, there are people who come with that athlete, 
whether it be the coach, the trainer, the encourager, a, a part, a friend, whoever it is. And in between rounds, they go to their corners to get encouragement, to get challenge, to get direction in how to achieve their goal, which is victory. Behind every great victor, there are people behind. And so we can look at a passage like this as it relates to David's life. In Acts chapter 13, Paul writes this about David. He says this, for David, after he had served the purposes of God in his own generation, he fell asleep. What a great line, right? That when David accomplished God's purposes, God took him home. I told my wife, this is what I want on my tombstone. When David accomplishes God's purpose in his generation, he fell asleep. And then my wife said, that is silly because people think that David died here, right? But listen, what we need to realize that there were people in David's life. David had a community. David had people that surrounded his life to help him accomplish God's purposes in his life. You ever heard that phrase, show me your friends, and I will show you your what? Your future. Yeah. My son just entered into the middle school. He's about 11 years old. And one day on the way to school, we are driving. I had a, decided to give him a moment of a coaching parenting moment. And we decided to talk about the friends that he was making in middle school. And so I told my son, Luke, show me your friends and I will show you your future. And I told him, what does that mean? What do you think that means? And, and Luke takes a moment to just think and, and he responds correctly. He says this, you know, depending on who that is in your life, the friends that you choose will determine the person that you're going to become. And I said, you're right. And then I look in the rear view mirror because sitting right behind me is my daughter, Leah. And Leah's behind me and she has this confused look on her face. And not just a confused, but more of a concerned face. And so I go, Leah, do you understand what this means? What do you think it means? It's like, I, Dad, she's like, Dad, I understand it. I get it. But how is it that you know my future? Can, can you see through the future? Like, like, what kind of dark arts do you perform, right? But the reality is, is this. That, that, that the two shaping forces in our life, the greatest shaping forces in our lives are the choices that we make. Someone even put it this way. You take up all the choices that you make and you bundle it together, that is you. And the second greatest shaping force in our lives is the friends that we have. Because here's the reality. We are made for friendships. And the same is true that our friendships make us. So the question is, who are the friends that we need to have in our life? Who are the friends that David had in his corner? Well, if you're taking notes, put this down as letter A. Who was in David's corner? What kind of friends that we need to have? Write this down as letter A. We need a Samuel who sees God's best in us. We need a Samuel who sees God's best in us. See, the reality is before David was this mighty warrior, before he was king of Israel, he was just a teenage boy, right? He, he was a teenage boy and grew up in relative obscurity. No one really knew him. No one thought about him. And at that time, the king of Israel was King Saul. And Saul was not God's choice. It was the nation of Israel's choice. See, the nation of Israel said that we want a king just like the other kings. And so we elect Saul. But because of Saul's wickedness, God rejects Saul as king. And he says, I'm going to appoint myself a new king, and he's going to be in the house of Jesse. Who was Jesse? Jesse was David's father, and Jesse had eight sons. The youngest was David. And so God sent Samuel to say, okay, Jesse, 
in the house of, I mean, sorry, Samuel, in the house of Jesse, you're going to anoint the next king. But I'll tell you who it is when you get there. So Samuel, I mean, uh, Jesse lines up his seven boys, minus David, and he's there, and Samuel goes one after the other one, not you, not you, not you. And by the time he gets to the seventh son, he's like, Jesse, is there another one? Because none of them are it. These are it. And then they're like, well, yeah, there is one more, but we're not talking about David, right? He's not kingly material. He, he's, he's not what you need to, to run the nation to be king. He's just a shepherd boy. We left him out in the field. He's in the middle of there just picking his nose. Like, we don't know who he, like, like he's not what it takes. But right before just, I mean, Samuel arrives to the scene, God speaks to Samuel, and 1 Samuel 16, verse 7 says this, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things that people look at. People look at outward appearances, but the Lord, the Lord looks at the heart. And right at that moment, they bring David, and he anoints him king of Israel. Samuel was so instrumental in the life of David because he saw something in David that no one, not even his parents, not even his brothers saw. But he saw God's best in David. Do you have a friend like that? Do you have a friend who sees God's potential in you, sees God's best in you? Do you have someone in your life willing to speak up for you and see the future, not even when you discount yourself? And they see God's best in you. Well, there's this one character in the New Testament, and it happens to be Apostle Paul. And he had a similar friend by the name of Barnabas. Now, Paul, before he became the great Apostle Paul, who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, spread the gospel, planted churches, Paul was a persecutor of Christians. He was part of the, the demise of the Christian religion. He wanted to, to end it at all costs. He was hell-bent on stopping the movement of Jesus. But what ends up happening, on the road to Damascus, Jesus appears to Paul and says, Paul, you're persecuting me. Why? And Paul, in that moment, converts to Christianity. He, comes, he starts off as someone who hates Christians and persecutes them to becoming a Christian himself. He becomes a person who was hell-bent to stopping the mission of Jesus to becoming the person who carries the mission of Jesus. The only problem was no one was there to witness that. <laughs> no one was there to witness his conversion. And so Paul goes to the disciples and says, hey, I've changed. And they're like, no, you haven't, right? And so in Acts chapter 9, verse 26, the interaction is this. And when they had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. That is Paul. And when they were there, they were all afraid. And they had reasons to be afraid for they did not believe that he was a disciple. They believed that this was like a plot from Paul to get them the inside so they know that we're at and persecute them. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how on, at Damascus he had preached boldly the name of Jesus. You know what Barnabas did? He laid down his credibility on the line because he saw Paul's future and what God was going to do in his life. And he saw in Paul you know what Barnabas' nickname in the New Testament? Barnabas' nickname is son of encouragement. Do you got a friend who encourages you? 
This is a friend who speaks God's best intent in your life, who sees the future that God is leading you and he is driving you. In fact, I would even say this, the people in your life that you call heroes, the people in your life that you call friends are the people who spoke encouragement and God's truth in your life. Like I never forget the time where a friend of mine says, that, you know what, you're gonna make, be something great in this world through God's help. I had a friend who told me, and I'll never forget, he says, God has called you into ministry even when I didn't believe it. I have a friend who, I remember, never forget him telling me, Van, you clearly work out. I'm kidding. I've, I don't actually, <laughs> none of my friends actually have ever told me that. But, but here's, here's, what I, my, here's what I'm trying to say. For every Samuel who speaks in your life, they need to speak four letters in your life. And the letter is I, C, N, and U where they can look at you and say, I see in you what God sees, and I'm gonna draw you and help you and usher you into the future that God has for you. See, the issue for us why we are so dissatisfied in our friendships is because of the inability to see in other people what God has for them. And Tim Keller, in his book called The Meaning of Marriage, he writes this, and he talks about our dissatisfaction and how our inability to see, encourage people, our inability to see God's best and only deal with people based on who they are and what they have done. And he says this, within the Christian vision of marriage. Now, he's talking about marriage here, but you could easily interchange friendship. In the, the, within the Christian vision of marriage, here's what it means to fall in love or to be a good friend. It is to look at another person and say, I get a glimpse of what God is creating. I see in you. I see God's best. And to say, I see who God is making you, and it excites me. I want to partner. I want to be part of that, and I want to partner with you and God in the journey you are taking to his throne. And when we get there, I will look at your magnificence and say, I've always knew you could be like this. I got a glimpse of it on earth, but now look at you. You have a Samuel in your life. And listen, not only do we need a Samuel in our life, but write this down as letter B. We need a Jonathan that can commit, who commits to you. We need a Jonathan who can commit to you. And uh, 1 Samuel 18 says this, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Now, who was Jonathan? Well, Jonathan was David's best friend. And not only was he his best friend, but he was Saul's son, right? So you can just imagine your father is the king of Israel, and Samuel pronounces a new king of Israel, and you can kind of see the tension that that plays. And furthermore, if Jonathan is the son of Saul, what does that make him? The rightful heir to the throne. And you can see in Jonathan and David's life, Jonathan, it cost him a lot to be a friend of David. But the moment that David shows up in the scene and he defeats the Philistines, he defeats their warrior Goliath, it was at that moment Jonathan realized and discovered, truly, this is the king of Israel. This is what Samuel was talking about. And at that very moment, Jonathan commits to David and the future that God has for David. And he commits his life. He, he makes a covenant. He, he gives David his royal robe and he gives David his armory to signify what? You have my privilege, you have my future, and I will do whatever it takes to see you on that throne. Because he committed. Now the reality is when you look at this, you're like, 
How do you get a friend like that, right, who commits to you? Well, I think there are two barriers. Well, I'll say one barrier and one thing that we need to do if we want a friend like Jonathan who commits to us. Well, the first one is this. We need to stop being so guarded. I think because we're so uh, we're afraid of being vulnerable, afraid of being hurt or betrayed, but we're never guarded. In fact, what sociologists says that we live in this life with a buffered self, that, that whenever you meet someone, you're not really meeting the, the, the true person. You're meeting the buffered version of themselves. Whatever they want to project to you, this is who I am. And we're so guarded that we never let anyone in, and so we always will sh- uh, settle for shallow relationships. And so how you get beyond the buffered self and how you get beyond to be a vulnerable person and have people who commit to you and you commit to others is that you have to get to the place of self-disclosure. You have to be honest, not with just yourself, but with other people, where you're at and where you're going, and so they can walk alongside with you in life. There's a research that was done to really discover what it takes to foster these kinds of relationships, to, to, to discover what closeness looks like in relationships. And though these two researchers decided to do was to develop 36 questions to foster that. And in this question, they would gather two complete strangers for two hours and ask these 36 questions, and the results were staggering. What the people responded was, you know, when it comes to this, listen, it took two hours at a person I've never met, but I feel like I've known them my whole life. I feel like they know my whole story because it drew out in them their vulnerabilities and empathy towards one another. In fact, the research was so popular and such a success that the first people, the first couple that got together for two hours to ask 36 questions, you know what happened? Well, eventually they got married. And all our singles are like, Google 36 questions, right? <laughs> but the, the reality is, and, and the truth is, that, that what it takes is self-disclosure. And can I say that most of our relationships, if we're honest with ourselves, it's not marked by self-disclosure. It's marked by proximity and convenience and the rhythms of our life. Here's what I mean by that. So the friends that you might say, these are the list of my friends, are probably friends because of circumstances, right? They, they work with you. They're your neighbors, right? They're the people that have the rhythm of life because they go to the gym with you or their kids play in the same sport league that you. But what happens when you get a different job and, and you move to a different department or, or what happens when your kids transfer to another team or what happens if you go to another gym or, or move to a different town? Are those friends still going to be your friends or were they just your friends because of convenience? You see, what marks a friend who commits to each other is a choice, and it's a choice to stick at it no matter what. Listen, I've moved several times, but there's a friend that I always go back to, and listen, it costs me something. It is not convenient to have and maintain this relationship because they live so far away, but listen, he's a person I go to. We as a family vacation together, and we are committed to the relationship that we have towards us, and not just within us, but with our family as well. Can I tell you, when David became king in Israel, usually when a king overthrows another king, he drives out or kills their family. Why? Because you don't want an insurrection. But because David was so committed to his friend Jonathan, that even Jonathan's cripple son, once Jonathan passed away and he died, took on Mephibosheth and took care of him because of the commitment that he had with Jonathan. So you need a Jonathan who commits to you. And listen, 
you need another friend in your corner, and that is a Nathan who challenges you. You need a Nathan who challenges you. Finally, David ascends to the throne. He is a king after being anointed king as a teenager. 15, year later, 15 years later, he is the king of Israel. And one day as king, when kings went out to war, the Bible says, David stayed back. And at the height of his balcony in his palace, he sees a woman bathing, and he's attracted to her. And so he calls his servants, who's this woman bathing over there? And they said Bathsheba. And David's like, I know she's taking a bath. No, no, no. Her name is Bathsheba. She's actually your, married to Uriah, one of your mighty men that you know. And even knowing this relationship, David commits adultery. And, and time flies by and Bathsheba says, I'm pregnant. And David's like, oh, no. Your husband's out to war. When he comes back and he realizes you're pregnant, it's not going to be a good thing. So, so David uh, calls and summons Uriah to come back for a little break, you know, to go with your wife, and then maybe you guys have babies there, right, and kind of cover this whole thing up. But Uriah's like, no, 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 all my friends and all my buddies are at war. I can't be thinking about this right now. And so what David does is he conspires a scheme to send Uriah to the front lines so that he would die in battle to cover up his sin. That's exactly what David does. At the moment, he thinks, okay, I covered it up. No one needs to know. That is when God sends Nathan, the prophet, in his life. And so Nathan comes to David and confronts him by telling him a story. And the story goes similar to like this. He says this, uh, David, um, here's a story of a rich man who had tons of sheep and tons of cattle, plethora. Now, there's a poor man who only had one sheep, and he loved the sheep, right? He treated it as his own daughter. He brought it to the house. They drank the same cup, ate from the same plate, right? Nathan's like, he's kind of like your modern dog or pet owners who dress up their clothes for their their pets and have family pictures and know their Enneagrams, right? Like, he just loved them so much. And one day, the stranger comes into town, and, and, and this rich man says, well, I want to be, be hospitable and provide a feast for you, but I'm not going to take it from my stall. I'm not going to use my own sheep. You know what I'm going to do? That one guy who has that one sheep that he loves, I'm going to take it, slaughter it, and make lamb chops for this guest. And David is angered by this. And Jonathan says this in 2 Samuel 12, verse 7. Nathan said to David, well, David, you are that man. Confronting him of his sin, the conspiracy of murder and adultery. See, a good friend is characterized not just by the convenience. A good friend is uh, uh, characterized by someone who will step into the gap to intervene for your good, who's interested not just in your happiness but your holiness. And he speaks and he confronts David of his sin, and David is distraught. Let me ask you a question. Do you have friends like Nathan in your life who love you enough to confront you, who love you enough to challenge you? See, we need to deputize people in our life that we trust, godly people in our lives, to give them hunting licenses to search the depths of our soul. There's anything. Has there been a friend in your life who says this? Listen, be careful of that decision you're going to make. Be careful of the choices you make. You don't want to do this because it'll compromise your marriage. It'll compromise your family. It will compromise your faith. 
See, the Bible reminds us from Proverbs this, Proverbs 27, verse 5, better is an open rebuke than a hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. You know, when I was in my early 20s, um, I felt like the Lord was calling me to ministry, so I went to Bible college, and I felt like the Lord was calling me to the local church. So I served and I worked at a local church, and then eventually God called me to plant a church, and so I went and planted a church, but that came with an utter regret and utter failure. And I, I had this moment in my life where I was thinking, I think I misheard from God, and that one seed of doubt caused me to reverse engineer all my history. So if, if I misheard from God on this church plant, then, then certainly I misheard from God from serving into ministry. And if I, I misheard God from serving, I misheard him calling me into the ministry, so I had to consider another life choice. But I just had Nathans in my life who said, you know, I, I, we hear you, we know the struggle that you're going through, we know the doubt, that, that the darkness, but can we just tell you, that's not true of you. And they confronted me and they ushered me into God's future that I would not be here today if it wasn't for Nathan's friends who loved me enough to confront me and to challenge me into the purposes that God has for me. So two questions I want to ask you. Number one, who is in your tribe? Do you have a Samuel who calls out God's best in you? Do you have a Jonathan who can commit to you? Do you have a Nathan who can confront you in your life? Greg Rochelle has this great line. He says this, you may be one friend away from changing the course of your destiny. So you may be one friend away, one Samuel away, one Jonathan away, one Nathan away from being the parent that you always dreamed of, to having the marriage that you desire, to having that financial freedom that you are looking for. You might be one friend away from overcoming that addiction that plagues your life. You might be one friend away from meeting the risen Jesus. And you know what? Here at Christ Fellowship, you know the best place to look and find that is in what we call small groups. It's something beyond what we have in our gathering here where people can become Samuels and find their Samuels, where people by, by, by trust can be, or people who can be Jonathans and commit to each other and help each other out in their darkest moments and commit to their well-being, where people have permission to be Nathans, to speak God's truth and challenge them to something so much better. And so if you're looking for a tribe Consider finding it in a small group here at Christ Fellowship. Second question I want to ask you, who is yet to be in your tribe? Who is yet to be in your tribe? Because here's what we see in the Bible. Whenever someone finds a tribe, whenever they find their people, whenever they find their tribe in Christ, they are bent to bring other people and so what you see is people inviting other people and introducing them to Jesus. Because listen, you can hear a message like this, and the danger is this. I just need these people in my lives where God is calling you to be these kind of people in people's lives. See, there's a fine line from finding your tribe and what's known as tribalism, where it's all about me and my wants and my desires and not realizing that Christ has served us so that we serve others. And so who's yet to be in your tribe? Now listen, you can hear a message like this, and I, I can already hear it, right? 
Pastor Van, that's great and all, but you don't understand my struggles when it comes to friendships. You don't know my struggles as it relates to being betrayed and wanting to trust again. You don't know what I've been through. You know, you don't know. I've tried small groups. I've tried meeting with people. I, I don't have that kind of personality. I, I don't have that kind of, you know, that, that, that kind of charismatic. And listen, I, I get that. And I understand that. And I understand the frustration and what loneliness is. But can I tell you, not only are we created for meaningful relationships, but listen, Jesus provides the model that we ought to follow. In fact, write this down as point three and we'll close. Jesus is our greater friend. Amen? Jesus is our greater friend. Jesus is our greater Samuel who sees in us which we don't even see in ourselves. He did this with Peter, on and on. He, Peter was just a mess up and a screw up, but Jesus never looked at Peter and considered him based on who he was and his past, but he saw Peter for the potential that he had, that when the Holy Spirit fills his life, that, that, that Peter will preach a message and 3,000 people will get saved, and then he would go on to perform incredible miracles, spreading the gospel to the point where he gets persecuted and executed on a cross. But Peter says this, I am not worthy to die in the way of my Messiah, so history and tradition tells us he gets crucified upside down. That is who God sees. He sees in you what you don't see in yourself because of what God will do for you and through you. See, Jesus is the greater Jonathan who commits to you. See, for Jonathan, he had a great cost of being David's friend. Can I tell you that there was a point in time in David's life that he was running and fleeing from Saul, and so Jonathan traveled 30 miles to strengthen David. And our God, what Jesus has done, he has crossed a greater chasm from glory to putting on flesh and blood and traveling the hills of Calvary to redeem us of our sins. Jesus is committed to you. And Jesus is our greater Nathan, who confronts us, who loves us enough to step in the gap for us. And praise be to God. See, see, when it comes to friendships, the reason why it's so hard for us to have friendships is because of this thought that if people knew who I truly was, the skeletons in my closet, what I've done or what I'm going through, what I'm thinking at the moment, and when the people will find out that truth, they're going to walk away from my life. So I will keep a buffered self. I will be guarded. But let me ask you this question. Who's the only person in your life who knows everything about you? Your weaknesses, your failures, your past, your insecurities. Who's the only person in your life who knows you fully? It's God. So in Christ, we are known fully, but we are loved completely. What a friend we have in Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. And Father, we come to you, Lord, and we, we recognize, Lord, that we didn't first love you, but you first loved us. We're reminded in the scriptures that you no longer call us servants, but you call us your friend. The God of the universe calls us their friend. And Lord, help us to model this for other people. And God, I, I want to take a moment to pray right now for those of us, Lord, who are in our circles of isolation and loneliness. God, I, I pray that you would intervene on their behalf.
and help them to realize that they are loved by you, that there is a God who commits to them, that they are not alone, that you have never left them, or no, you have never forsaken them, that you are a friend forever. And Lord, I, I just pray for divine appointments, God that you would place Samuels in our lives, that you would put Jonathans in our lives, that you would put Nathans in our lives, in the lives of our kids, in the lives of our students and our young adults, God, that you would divinely place people strategically in the path in our lives. Because, God, what we're, we're reminded in Scripture, Lord, is not that we are to find a tribe, we're reminded in Scripture that to be the kinds of people that make up a tribe. So, God, I, I pray that we find it. We pray we find it in our small groups. And I pray, Lord, that we find the friend in Jesus in this place. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. pray. Amen and amen. Christ Fellowship, it's always an honor and a privilege to share from God's Word with you. At this moment, I want to invite our campus pastors and our hosts to join us on stage as we dismiss. God bless you.